My guest today is Greg Nance. Greg is the CEO of Dyad.com, an educational access platform providing mentorship for the motivated. He's also a Brooks Running sponsored ultramarathon runner and a graduate of the Cambridge University Judge School of Business. He is a serial entrepreneur and a recipient of the White House Champion of Change Award from Barack Obama. That was for his work with his first startup, MoneyThink, which provided financial mentorship to underprivileged students from across America. Greg recently completed the World Marathon Challenge, running seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. He has since switched his attention to setting the fastest known time all over the world wherever he travels. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Thank you very much, Greg, for taking the time to do this. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Okay. So the first thing that I want to talk about that I've been asked about multiple times before sitting down to record this is seven marathons on seven continents in seven days, starting with Antarctica. Uh-huh. <laughs> how, how do you end up getting involved with something like that? First thing is it helps to be a little crazy. Um, so I'm an ultra marathon runner and I'm always looking to push push the envelope, push my limit to the next level. I heard about this deal, you know, less than a hundred people have ever done this compared to 5,000 who've climbed Everest. And when I heard that little factoid, I was like, wow, I've, how do I do this? Like <laughs> sign me up. So that, that was the origin about three years ago. Uh, and I, I knew I had to train myself uh, physically to, to do this, the seven marathons in seven days, and then mentally, uh, and then put together the right crew to actually pull this off logistically, operationally, all this. So it was a kind of a multi-year undertaking, but one that uh, I had really the passion and the motivation to pull it off. Fantastic. And so it, it starts in Antarctica, then That's the right. second one was in Cape Town. That's right. And then where did it go from there? Yeah, Antarctica, Cape Town, Perth, Australia, Dubai, UAE, Madrid, Spain, Santiago, Chile, and then finishing in Miami, USA. And if you look at a kind of a globe, that's really the shortest route between each continent. Mm-hmm. And so we, we had an incredible operations team that was basically able to sort out you know, flight flight paths and plans. Uh, pilots have certain regulations about how many hours consecutively they can fly. So like so many operations that these guys just like checked every box and did a, a wonderful job planning this. And, and therefore, we were able to, to run it start to finish within about 163 hours to, to fit within that full seven, seven marathons within the seven days. So. Wow. So it, is this organization, like you having to organize it, is it part of like a global sort of race thing? Or is this something you kind of end up doing off your own back? It, uh, so I, I exper- or I was thinking about how would I do that off my own back, and mm-hmm. I quickly realized like I am drowning in complexity, mm-hmm. and then drowning in costs as well. Like it just it's, it's staggering pretty quickly. Um, luckily, there is a super enterprising ultra runner, fellow named Richard Donovan, who uh, he's like a Guinness World Record holder. He's run across like four continents. Uh, incredible, incredible uh, fellow. He he organizes an annual attempt at this, and I heard about his outfit, and I said, hey, like what do I need to do to to, to tag along here? Because this sounds great and you've got the team to actually pull this off and so I got, I got roped in he gave me kind of a qualification and then it was a matter of putting the financing to uh, to join on mm-hmm. so you're living in shanghai when you're preparing for this that's right undertaking. and obviously if you're running in antarctica then you're running in cape town and so on and so but you've got hugely different climates to deal with yep how do you train for that 
one of the hardest parts because generally as you prepare for an ultra marathon you know it's going to be really hot or it'll be cold and you can really focus mental energy on that uh you're right within those seven days you're dealing with lots of different climates and a lot of unpredictability within each of those climates so for me i made a cold weather plan and then a kind of a a super heat plan and then plan the transitions there too and so my uh, my kind of default workout was wake up early in the morning before before sunrise like 4 a.m uh, and it's you know, winter Shanghai, you know, November, December. I'm peeling off the layers. I've got running shorts and my, my Brooks tennis shoes on and I'm hitting the streets and it might be 35, 40 degrees, um, three or five or seven Celsius. Um, and you're running, you're really, really chilled because you're not wearing anything, but that's how your body's going to be feeling when you're running in, uh, in Antarctica. And so a lot of that's a little bit of physical acclimation, but even more important, the mental, mental conditioning yeah. around that. Uh, you finish that run. Uh, I'd, I'd come back, take a, uh, a lukewarm shower to slowly get some blood flow back. Um, you know, the fingers sting, the toes sting as, as they uh, come out of numbness. And then I'm continuing the run 15 minutes later, but now uh, with as many warm clothes as I can possibly wear. And I'm running a mile and a half down the road to my office. We're on the 15th floor of this office building. And I start doing uh, somewhere between 300 and 600 flights of stairs. Uh, and I'm, I'm in about seven layers, like uh, like three parkas, a bunch of sweatpants, jeans over that. And so like I am sweating like a pig within 30 flights of stairs. And that's to simulate again the cold to the heat because uh, you that transition is going to be really tough i knew that before i ever did it and i figured hey this will pay dividends on uh, on race week and uh, you you put in that training again mentally physically emotionally so that you're ready for that mm, simulating adversity adversity training as it were i never raced a rainy day indeed yeah so the first race is in antarctica you how do you fly there just I'm assuming they're obviously no direct flights from Shanghai. How does one go about organizing getting to the line there? Yeah, so we we all um, there were actually 40 of us who attempted this. We all connect in Cape Town two days before uh, disembarking to Antarctica, and it's funny. In these two days, we do a bunch of like mandatory safety briefings. We sign a death waiver, like, "Hey, we very well may die in Antarctica. Like, here are all these risks. Um, uh, you're you know you're signing away your life there, getting your you know getting oriented with all this, and meeting some incredible folks." Uh, from like former Olympians to folks who have held numerous world records, pro runners, and it's sort of a who's who of just like interesting endurance athletes. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm the youngest guy at that start line and just like learning a lot, soaking that up as we go uh, in those two days. So then we file on to a uh, this chartered 747, which is uh, one of the fun vignettes here. It's actually U2's uh, concert touring jet. Uh, they're not touring at that time. It's so, like we actually rent that jet from Titan Airways, who leases these planes. So uh, that was one of the cheaper, and it, it fit the the specs we needed to actually get to Antarctica. Uh, and it's a five hour flight um, due south from Cape Town. So you're you're going straight south, and it's pretty surreal looking up at the monitor of like the map. Uh, you know, you're following the flight journey, and it's like wow, like. That's Antarctica, and we're getting real close. Real and close it's got like the temperature outside, and it's just like you know getting real chilly. And it's you start shivering just kind of thinking about that. Then looking out the window, and you see ice as far as the eye can see. The plane's descending. There's no runway. Like, what are we actually going to land on? And it's just a sheet of ice. And you cross your fingers. You hope for the best. Um, and luckily, these pilots they've they've done this a bunch and uh, a smooth touchdown for us. Wow! So you made this flight. Five hours on the plane. What's going through your head then? You've got seven days of 
whatever life is going to throw at you coming up, yep. what's going through your head on that flight? I've got seven days in front of me and I've got 700 days behind me of envisioning this very moment. And I've got, you know, 27 years of dreaming about Antarctic exploration from the time my dad read me stories of Ernest Shackleton and Robert Falcon Scott. And uh, sitting down there, it was just like so surreal as I look out and see that my buddy, uh, Luke Nolan, my training partner, he's next to me on the flight and we're giving each other a big bear hug as we're about to head out there. Uh, we know we've got one hour from the time we touched down on ice to get fully prepped before the starting gun where all this begins. And it was a moment of gratitude. It's like so many folks have been contributing and encouraging and supporting to get me to this moment. Uh, and I've been working my tail off for 700 days to, uh, to be in the right frame of mind, the right physical, you know, position to be able to attempt this. And it, uh, yeah, I felt a little bit of emotion. I felt a lot of focus too, because I, I knew I had paid my dues and I was ready to, to go test it. And you, you step out of the plane, you feel like gusts of wind, like you don't feel here in Shanghai. Mm -hmm. It's so brittly cold. Your ears are instantly tingling, even through my, my warm winter cap. Uh, you know, my nose goes numb instantly. And uh, I'm wearing sunglasses, but it's still overwhelmingly bright. And friends were teasing me, hey, like those are like, you know, stylish shades. You should have glacier goggles. I was like one of the only people that didn't have the real fancy schmancy mountaineering goggles. So it, uh, yeah, a surreal moment, one of gratitude and one of uh, we're about to get down to business. And so I was really trying to get the head right at that moment too. So what was your, what was your time on the ice for the first marathon? Time on the ice. Um, we ran, it was a four, about a 44 kilometer marathon. So it was actually a, uh, a little bit long. It was a, about a mile further, and I ran, I believe, a four oh seven on that, uh, and I felt I felt really good actually. So like I was in pace the whole way. I had a couple of really good folks that were running shoulder to shoulder with me for good stretches of that, and the last ten fifteen, uh, I was just like really in a rhythm, and so like, it didn't feel too strenuous. And that was really my big goal. Like, I want to enjoy this mm -hmm. for what it is. Run in Antarctica. This is amazing. How many opportunities are you going to get to do that? Exactly, man. And I want to finish this with full health because it's going to be a uh, a long week. If you if you have any kind of injury or anything else, so get get to that uh, finish line, full health, and with you know spirits looking forward. Mm -hmm. So you make it to the finish line. You're in full health physically, in so much as you don't have any injuries. You get on the plane to Cape Town and then what happens? Yeah, so I'm uh, the advice I've gotten from folks that have attempted this previously is sleep and eat as much as you can on the flights because when you're on the ground, you're running. And if you if you haven't gotten your sleep, haven't gotten your food, it makes everything else a lot, lot harder. And so that, that was my mentality. So uh, you feel so great. We got our little photos. You know, there's some hugs there at the finish line. Uh, and then you're back on the jet. And so, yeah, first order of business, uh, you know, stuff my face, which I do. It was delicious dinner. Uh, and then I'm, I'm out, I'm sleeping. Uh, three and a half, four hours later, as we're kind of approaching Cape Town, um, there's a there's an announcement. Hey, like, folks, we recommend you wake up, start stretching out, get some more food in you. Uh, we're going to be touching down in an hour. As I come to, I'm uh, I'm really, really sweaty. Like, I'm really sweaty. And I'm, I'm just wearing, like, my nightshirt, which I sleep in all the time. Like, I shouldn't be sweating in this. Uh, and I, you know, not feeling so good. I, I got to rehydrate because I've been sweating on the flight. That's not good. I'm about to go into, you know, a real hot marathon where I'm going to need all that liquid. Uh, and I start, you know, putting some water down the hatch, but it doesn't really uh, feel quite right. I try some Gatorade, which sometimes helps. Um, now I'm, like, real queasy. Tea doesn't go down. Coffee doesn't go down. Coca-Cola doesn't go down. Um, something's a little off with my stomach and it, uh, 
you know, I'm, I'm wanting to eat something because I know I need more calories and don't really have an appetite, can't get anything down the hatch, uh, none of the liquid sitting. And so I'm real nervous. Like, what did I eat? Do I have some kind of food poisoning deal? I don't know. Um, you know, I've got, I've got, I'm running a fever and I'm just like sort of sweating while sitting there. And so, uh, mentally that's, that's a sort of a rough spot because we're just getting going and I've got, you know, the toughest transition right in front of me and I really need to be overhydrated. Like there's no real cost to overhydrating here. Um, but there's a big cost to being, you know, underhydrated, dehydrated, which, which I felt. And that was really the beginning of, uh, the pain and suffering to follow. So. So you end up in this situation where obviously like the wheels have fallen off a little bit here. What motivates you in that situation? Like how do you push yourself to keep going? Because I mean, I'm sure many people listening would probably empathize. It's like, well, I'm starting the second marathon and I've got another six more to go, including mm. the one that I'm going to attempt and I'm dealing with food poisoning. How do you keep going through that? How do you deal with that adversity? Yeah, I, I think back. So one of the things, a mentor who really got me into distance running back in the day, he shared with me is uh, your uh, your body won't fall apart until your brain does. Um, and the basic idea is if you keep your mind right, you can actually keep your body on the rails. And that was my mentality. Where, like I knew something was up. I didn't quite know what it was, but I knew getting that start line, if I just like really, really like focus in, take it one step at a time, find my rhythm, get the groove, like eventually like the stomach will come back. I can put some liquid down and I'm going to cover 26.2 miles, like for, just 42K. I got this uh, a step at a time. And, and that was the mentality. And um, that actually, that helped me get through the first 10 kilometers of the run. And, you know, I wasn't going super quick. So I, I really knew I needed to, to sort of dial it in. I knew I needed to get some hydration and, and fuel to cover the full distance. And so uh, really keeping your mind right is is the short answer there. And, and I think if you can keep your mind right, uh, you can surprise yourself. Um, eventually, uh, you know, my body had a, had a mind of its own, really. And I, uh, I was running out of electrolytes. I was running out of uh, really liquid to just sustain the engine here. And, you know, my quads start really pulsing up, then convulsing. And uh, then it's every step, my calves are really going off. I'm just feeling like Charlie horses all over. And that was a real tough moment because your brain, you know, you're trying to override that. But ultimately, like, you've got a couple different strides you can kind of turn to in those moments. And when every one of them is locking up, uh, I, I had to hobble and limp uh, and near crawl my way to the next checkpoint. Uh, and luckily, there's there's great doctors who, uh, you know, we've got to get this sodium tablet down the hatch so we can get some electrolytes going to sort of ease this up. Let's let's put a half banana down the hatch to try to get some potassium to those, uh, you know, really, really like convulsing legs. Um, and so, again, it's it's keeping your mind right and then having the right support, the right team behind you, too, because sometimes things do go off the rails mm -hmm. and you need help getting back on. Oh, for sure. So you make it to the end of this marathon, obviously overcoming something like that, that level of challenge at that stage in the race, you finish the marathon, that puts you on a high, I'm guessing, it, it, you, to a certain extent. It does, yeah, because like this was one of the darkest, you know, I've run a lot of races and this one was a dark one because uh, usually when you reach a finish line, you're done and you get uh, several weeks, a couple months to uh, like bask in that before you're seriously training and competing again. In this case, it's like, look, I'm running in, in 16 hours and uh, another marathon in 16 hours. Uh, and at that moment, my stomach felt even worse. We're like, I'm looking for the nearest bathroom. Um, and I'm just like, now I'm kind of sunburned and just like feeling 
just real, real like def- like zero energy um, as we go here. Uh, one of the silver linings was just the incredible amount of like support and encouragement from fellow competitors. Where um, you know every one of us we want to do as well as we can, and when you and you know how hard you've worked to the start line, you see someone else um, and how much they're they, how much they want, but how much they're suffering. Uh, there's a lot of just compassion there. And so, you know, it was just amazing, like getting that finish line, having all, all these friends come up like, hey, I've got all these snacks. Like, does any of this look appetizing? Hey, have you tried this juice? Or have you tried this goo or this gel? Um, hey, I've got this massager. This is what your calves and your quads need right now. So like on that flight from Cape Town on, I'm on the ground with Dr. Paul, this Irish doc, who's like going to town on my calves and quads. And then I've got, you know, 10, 12 fellow competitors, like literally troubleshooting, trying to figure out what's going to make me feel a little better. And that's just like total, you know, wind below the wings, man, mm-hmm. to like just kind of pep you up. Like, look, uh, I might be the only one out there running, but I'm not alone. Like there's yeah. an entire support crew and just positive vibes all around. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sitting there like uh, reading my Bible, praying, like tr- looking for strength wherever I can find it. Uh, and, uh, you know, you're, you're searching your faith, you're searching for your spirituality there. And you've also had just incredible encouragement from the 39 other runners and this great support team. For sure. The power of shared adversity to kind of build bonds with people who are relative strangers beforehand. Is yeah. Something that Big time. Cannot, yeah. Be, cannot be overstated. Oh, man. So tell us a little bit about your first experience with ultramarathon running. How did you accidentally end up <laughs> doing this? Yeah. So I, I was a, uh, uh, my senior high school, I got, I got coaxed into um, into running by three of my buddies. They were on the mile relay team at our high school and they needed a fourth. Um, they were all three real quick and they'd seen me work out with the, uh, you know, baseball, tennis, and, uh, uh, like basketball teams previously. I, I come out and I really, really enjoy it. Like, I just love the idea of like running, moving fast, uh, and then exploring like these cool trails with my buddies. Like, it's just a fun deal. Um, but I, I was a 400 meter runner. That's one lap around the track by no stretch of a distance runner, right? Um, during college, I, uh, uh, realize I, the you know, longer I go, actually, I'm, I'm pretty good at it. Like, let me go run some five and 10 Ks. Let me actually try the marathon. Did a couple of those. I got a, a Boston marathon qualifying time. Nice. Uh, yeah. Which, which felt awesome. Um, yeah. 20, uh, 2011 and 2012, uh, Boston marathons. And, uh, from there, yeah, I, I was, you know, I'm, I'm strong at this and I'd love to, to do more of this. I get to the UK and, um, yeah, I'm interested in, keeping this going, but I also want to see more of England. Like I've just, I've never been here. It's all so beautiful and I want to explore more of it. Uh, and I, at this point, my like running, I realized like, I love the trails. I love the off-road stuff. Let's go check out the uh, Jurassic coast, which I'd heard, I'd seen photos of. And all my Brit buddies were like, this is where you want to be. Like, this is just so beautiful. And I found uh, one that looked pretty cool. And I, you know, pay my, like, I think it was like 30 quid or something. So like, I, I put in a little bit of cash, uh, get my bus ticket, out there and uh, a couple days before the race there's like a reminder like hey here's some logistics and it mentions like you need a drop bag i was like huh, i wonder what a drop bag is um and i'm realizing oh like this is for like the halfway point where you can get like some resupply and i was like huh like really for a, halfway for a 5K? Out of 5k what's, what's <laughs> this all about uh, and i look a little more closely and it's not a 5k it's it's a 50k uh, and so uh you know I, i'm not one for details in a lot of walks of life including absolutely that uh, that first ultra and so um, I felt like I was in pretty good shape, but this also was just like, what? Like I was primed to see if I could run like a, you know, let me see if I can do like a 17, 30, 18 minute on this like off-road 5k course. And then all of a sudden it's like, wow, like I don't know if I can even run that far. Cause I've, I've done a marathon, you know, a few times, but 
they're pretty flat. They're on pavement. It's very like well marked. And this is going to be rainy Southern, you know, England in the you know mid of December. So it, uh, a little bit of a, a hiccup there getting to that start line, but, uh, you know, similar deal to what I shared with like, you got to get your mind right. And once I realized, Hey, like, this is the task at hand, I'm going to go enjoy this for the adventure. It's going to be, I'm going to embrace, embrace the suck. Cause it's going to be cold. Yeah. It's going to be wet and it's going to be tough. Yeah, for sure. So the experience that you had on that first ultra, was there a point where you realized that I want to do more of these? Was there a point where you thought, Oh my God, I've made a <laughs> monumental mistake here. What happened with it? Yeah, it, it was an amazing experience. So I, I, I started off and um, one thing that was different about this kind of race is not only is it really beautiful, like, so like you were just surrounded by just, you know, God's paintbrush in all directions. It's just, it's a majestic land. You were also really, really gutting it and you're in pain a lot of this run. There are huge hills. It was raining. So you're real chilled. And, you know, I was literally using my hands to get up some of these hills and to safely get down some of these too. Um, so it's a, it's a you know, full body effort there. And you're alone for a lot of it. Like, you know, I, I expected to be shoulder to shoulder with folks like in a, in a 5K or 10K or marathon, uh, but no, like nobody. And, you know, there's only a hundred something people in this race um, at the, uh, you know, I'm wondering when this thing's going to end because like, I'm pretty numb by this point. I uh, see in the distance some flags. Like, huh, I wonder what that is. And I'm running, I'm like, that's the finish. Wow. Like I'm actually going to make it like I'm going to make it. I, I cross that line and you know, there's this like really sweet, like English lady. Congratulations. You finished 10th place. Whoa. I had no idea. I figured I was like one of the last guys. Like I uh, don't remember passing anybody. And it was just, uh, I was just like blown away. Like, wow. Like I, wow. Um, and within an hour of that, you know, you're drinking your hot chocolate, you're in a warm like tent with like a heater next to you. And you start smiling. It's like, I can't believe I just ran 50 kilometers. And there's so many like cool people I'm meeting now talking to these like interesting folks that have their stories of their own. And in that moment, I was hooked. I, uh, I was told about, Hey, there's a run in June at Hadrian's wall. I'm like a history buff. I love learning about the Roman empire. And when I heard Hadrian, wow, there's a run across, you know, the neck of England there. Hadrian's wall. Like I, I would love to try that. I look that one up. Oh, it's even longer. And, you know, then you start planning your training and how you're actually get prepared adequately for that. Uh, and that was just you know, real fun to kind of like jump into that rabbit hole uh, kind of accidentally. And then all of a sudden you're, uh, uh, you're hooked because it is a lot of fun. There's a great community around it. Mm-hmm. So you're in the UK when you do this race and you're studying at Judge Business School. That's right. Cambridge. That's right. <clears throat> and that was off the back of you graduating um, from University of Chicago. Yep. And whilst you're at the University of Chicago, you launch your first venture, which eventually catalyzes you going to Cambridge to learn more about how to run a business. That's right. Yeah. yeah. First venture is Money Think. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, Money Think uh, was a response to the 2008 financial crisis, which uh, for those of us that are old enough to remember, um, really just decimated a lot of the global economy. And, you know, of course, Wall Street takes a big hit. But in America, you know, Main Street took a bigger hit. And those actually at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder um, took, I think, the biggest hit of all. Those in rural communities and those in inner city America. Um, a lot of these folks live in paycheck to paycheck, no savings, no insurance. And when, uh, you know, you're, you lose your job or when economic calamity is all around, it just gets really, really, really tough. And, you know, I was a student at the university there and we're it's a beautiful university in the middle of uh, really a sea of there's a lot of endemic poverty there's a lot of challenges 
um, around you know this this university campus. And hey, we've got hundreds of bright, talented, motivated students that could actually do something in the community. We've got some knowledge, we've got some know-how about how to apply to university, how to save budget, set goals for that. We could be training local teenagers, local uh, middle and high school students how to think about their financial future. Because so often if you don't have someone in your life that's teaching you those things, you just, you just don't know and therefore you miss out. And so simple idea. We want to help people think more, uh, you know, smarter about their money, um, help them think about their money in, in constructive and creative ways to help them reach their goals. And we want to use what we call a near peer uh, mentorship model, where instead of it being like a 50 or 60 year old finance expert who's totally unrelatable because they're like your grandpa, instead it's someone that's just two, three, four years older who uh, that could be your buddy, just someone that you can look up to that has gone through it recently themselves. And we built a curriculum focused on pop culture examples. So, like, imagine, uh, you know, LeBron James, one of my idols. LeBron is like such a money master. Like, the dude knows how to make money work for him. He, um, you know, signed a billion dollar contract with Nike. And it's like, whoa, like, when you start talking about that kind of stuff with a, a student from inner city Chicago, they light up. It's like, dude, this is also one of my heroes. I want to learn how he approaches his money. And one of the ideas, like, money can be an asset. Money helps you reach your vision, helps you reach your goals. And for a lot of us, and we're not going to sign billion dollar deals with Nike, of course, but we can use money to actually help us get into university. We can use money to help keep the heat on this winter or, or buy that used car to help us get around the summer uh, or whatever that goal is. So, uh, uh, you know, our motto at MoneyThink is less debt, more degrees. We want to help students avoid debt both as, you know, as high schoolers and then avoid the debt trap of universities because uh, American universities are outrageously expensive. And if you don't know how to navigate, um, that financial aid process, you miss out on the grants, the the subsidized loans, and then the scholarships. They can actually pay for all of this, and you get hit with like really high interest rate private loans. And so, um, yeah, the short answer here is we want young people mobilized to do good in communities. And obviously, you were doing quite a large amount of good in the community because you were recognized for the White House Champion of Change Award. Yeah, for the work that you were doing with Money Think. Pretty, yeah. I mean, surprise of my life, man, getting getting a phone call there. And, you know, we, uh, you know, our, our emphasis is always it takes a village. And so we uh, we got started Southside Chicago. The idea, I think, was a good one and the timing was good. And we had a great team. And all of a sudden we're expanding now to Gainesville, Florida, to uh, Nashville, Tennessee, to L.A., to Seattle, to New York, to Boston, to D.C., and, uh, you know, folks took notice. We, we had some really cool uh, partners that helped us really spread the word. And, you know, eventually this got to Barack Obama's desk and he he and his team were, were looking for kind of youth activism they could point to as young people doing some good. Because, uh, you know, back in 2011, 2012, America's just coming out of, uh, you know, this, this uh, financial crisis and we're looking for more kind of good news to point to. And um, yeah, I think the work that our team was doing was, was pretty awesome. And so it was really, really special getting that recognition and that helped us really uh, you know, launch the rocket and, and get some new new elevation there, get some new momentum to really try to make the biggest difference we can. Fantastic. Then, obviously, like um, you were the recipient of some of these scholarships which enabled you to go to the University of Chicago, um, which means that you're your first-hand exposure to the way that this system can work for you as opposed to you working for the system is was quite good. Then you spent some time in Beijing mm -hmm. and that brings you to China seeing similar similar issues here which then leads you to finding Dyad. Tell us about the name Dyad. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, uh, uh, part of my education at University of Chicago, uh, there's, you're exposed to like every uh, discipline. Um, so, you know, I went in thinking, hey, maybe I want to study physics. I want to be an astrophysicist. Um, I, I learned the hard way that I didn't have the brain for that after getting like a 40 on my midterm. I was like, well, politely suggested <laughs> to find a different course. Um, so I, I flew between a bunch of subjects. One of them was philosophy. And I remember learning about uh, Plato and uh, reading this essay about kind of Plato's philosophy and what does it all mean? What does Plato say about the meaning of life? And one of the uh, lines really struck me was the idea of like the dyad. Um, Dyad uh, in in ancient Greek is the idea of two parts. And really like any two parts can be a dyad in relation. The dyad that Plato and his disciples were, were concerned about was the dyad within yourself. That is the present self, um, where you are, where I am today, and then the potential self, what we can become. And I remember reading through this uh, deal that talked about how uh, that dyad uh, is the perfect metaphor for the meaning of life, to go from where you are to where you're meant to be. And I remember kind of reading through this and talking about it. I was like, wow, like, that's just a really just powerful idea. Um, whoa, like just that, that, that really hit me. Um, years go by and like, you know, that's still somewhere in the back of my subconscious, but like I'm not, you know, actively working on that or thinking about that too, you know, too much day to day. And I, I'm now working on a mentorship platform in China. Um, you know, have this big idea. I want to expand education access. And my belief is always like focus on the hardest part of the problem because if you can build a solution there, then your solution is going to work everywhere. That's the mentality. Um, and so I am, you know, sleeves are rolled up. I'm cranking on this and we need a name for the project. And so uh, I thought back to that philosophy class and ah, dyad. And then I, I negotiate with the domain owner, um, dude in Florida who'd owned the domain since 1994, but hadn't done uh, anything with it. And so shot my note, hey, I would love to, you know, this, this name is very meaningful for the social enterprise I'm working on. Can we make a deal? And uh, got that deal done, launched the new brand, and uh, it's been just an amazing journey. Um, all about mentorship, all about mm-hmm. connecting people around the world to this online digital platform. Because I, my, you know, my own life has been completely changed by mentors. I've had folks teach me the ropes of business, get me into endurance running, help me travel the world for cheap. Um, all of these mentors have been just absolutely defining for me, and I want to pay that forward so that every student around the world has great advice to get into university and then actually to pay for it as well. Mm-hmm. Who was your most meaningful mentor? As in, who's had the biggest impact on your oh, life? Oh, man. That, that's a big one. Um, if I had to pick one, my uh, my grandpa, Charlie, he was a uh, Marine in the South Pacific during World War II, fought at Iwo Jima, um, was, a, was a hero there. He ran out of ammunition but protected his men literally with a shovel from his foxhole. Um, some really, really intense stuff, uh, all when he's 21, 22, 23 years old. Um, goes on with his 10th grade education to become a business leader at, uh, at Bell South, which um, part of the AT&T family, um, raises six kids, helps them get into, you know, from little Mississippi, they get into university. Um, and, you know, he's just an incredible guy who just always values learning, values service, values, you know, making the most of yourself and being just a contributor to those around you. And uh, I had a chance to, to spend uh, three really, really amazing years with him. He lived with us uh, into my middle school, beginning of my high school, and just learning from him over the breakfast table at dinner, um, having him come out to my baseball games, and really just supporting like the, the hopes, dreams, aspirations I had, which um, you know he couldn't have even dreamed of as a 16-year-old shoveling rock in a cave in Tennessee for 22 and a half cents an hour. I mean, it's just like I, I'm on another planet uh, 60 years later, thanks to the hard work that he uh uh, that he gave to our family. And 
uh, you know, he taught me a lot about what it is to be a good person, a good man, a good leader. And I'm, uh, I'm always trying to live up to, you know, the wonderful example that grandpa Charlie has, has shown me. Do you have any specific anecdotes that show the depth of that relationship that you'd be willing to share? Yeah. So like, um, you know, I remember one, uh, grandpa Charlie is, a. Uh, he was a very, very good pitcher. Um, he was uh, widely uh, deemed to have the best screwball in all of Tennessee. Screwball is a very hard pitch where basically the ball spins uh, down and in on a right-handed batter. Yeah, and it just, it's like very difficult to throw uh, and even harder to hit. And he was very, very good at that years and years ago. Due to the war, wasn't able to fulfill his dream of being a major leaguer. Um, I then feel like, you know, that's my dream. I want to make that dream happen for both me and Grandpa Charlie. Um, I remember he comes out, he's watching in the, the bleachers and he's never, ever put any pressure on me, but just having him there, this, you know, this fellow that knows the stuff to that level, I have just a you know, it's the worst game I've thrown like all season. I walk a bunch of batters. I get hit pretty cleanly. Um, and I, you know, I come out of there kind of shaking my head and, you know, I remember grandpa Charlie, uh, you know, sharing, sharing me like, Hey, it's, it's about like what you do next. Like grab your glove, go play defense, get the bat. You know, it's your turn to, it's your turn to hit. And I think that kind of mentality where like failure is actually, uh, just a great lesson learned as you go forward, uh, was part of his ethos. And, you know, he taught me how to compete, uh, the right way. I think he, he would say, show them your smoke. Uh, which was Tennessee speak for go show what you've got, like go, go play your hardest, play the right way, show them your smoke. And that, uh, that's a, uh, something I'll always remember about Grandpa Charlie and his just encouragement. Always think about the next one and how you can keep improving as you go. Mm-hmm. So like, like me, um, we had a brief chat about this before we started recording. Um, depression. Yep. is also something that you've dealt with when you were a teenager yep. and also more recently. Um, how does how does that kind of feed into the way that you approach your business? So yeah. Um, what could you first see? Let's wind it back a little bit. Could you tell us a little bit about about your experience with depression? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the um, the first time. I, you know, I, I was a very happy-go-lucky kid. Like I, you know, I, I'm from a place called Bainbridge Island, which uh, it's just the most idyllic place to grow up. It's like the size of Manhattan, but with like 50,000 trees. Uh, this like wonderful community, great coaches, great teachers. My parents are amazing. I've got a wonderful big sister, great little brother. Uh, it's it's idyllic. It's just an amazing place. And so, very carefree childhood. Um, when I'm 14 years old, we get a uh, you know this shocking phone call. Uh, terrible news. My my beloved cousin Brandon has passed away in a, uh, in a car accident, and I remember that news um, hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, it hit all of us like a ton of bricks. Where Brandon was like, you know, the strong, uh, really, really just a caring dude, um, eighteen years old, taken away in the prime of life, and that uh, was a really really tough one uh, for me. And I begin battling, you know, some insomnia, like I'm having nightmares, I can't even sleep. I'm just feeling like really kind of hollow and this emptiness. Um, and it takes weeks and sort of months for this feeling of loss and pain and anguish to, to slowly fade. Um, three years following, I'm, I'm now 17 years old. Uh, Grandpa Charlie, who's, you know, as I mentioned, is this like real rock in my life. Uh, you know, my best friend, this great mentor, he suffers a debilitating stroke. And one moment he goes from like one of the strongest people around to just a total shell of himself. He's he's lost all of his physical strength, and uh, even worse, he, he his mind isn't right. He's he's just lost um, he's lost it from this stroke. And over the next several weeks, 
seeing him kind of just fade away, like just losing his his body mass, losing his like ability to uh, his kind of mental sharpness um, was just like agonizing to see that. And I felt completely powerless in the face of this and I felt powerless to help him. And that's all I wanted to do. And that, um, uh, that triggered a, a whole new level of like sadness, despair, depression. And it, it was just, it was brutal where like, I felt like I didn't know who to talk to because I would have talked to grandpa Charlie about that head. Who do you turn to? Yeah. Who do you turn to? And so I felt like just very isolated, very lonely. And, you know, there's a lot of stress that, um, I was experiencing and I put on myself and that I think can make depression a lot harder when you're being critical about yourself. Like, hey, why don't you have more energy to do this? Or, you know, I'm playing sports. Like, hey, I, you know, I lost this tennis match. Like, you know, what, what were you doing though? Your backhand was terrible yesterday. And you get down on yourself, you start riding yourself and you know, that, that voice in your head, um, which sometimes can drive you to, to higher levels of performance. Well, it's definitely not driving a high level of performance in that time. Instead, it's, it's an obstacle for you feeling better, getting better. And it becomes a uh, kind of this doom loop where you're you're sinking uh, deeper and deeper and deeper as you go. And yeah, that uh, you know I, that was me at 17. And um, you know I turned to uh, you know really like substances. I was drinking and um, doing a variety of like you know um, self medicating. Yeah, self precisely self medicating uh, with friends and then even kind of by myself. And so like really just not uh, a very bad set of habits, mm-hmm. but. Um, yeah, I found that if you're not really dealing with like the fundamentals behind that and really like treating yourself compassionately and finding really good folks to support you through that and all that's hard to do, but if, if you're not able to do that, uh, I found that that like doom loop can, can really affect almost anybody. So, yeah. I agreed there. Agreed there. I've been in that loop myself and it's, it's not an easy thing to pull yourself out of. Yeah. How did you? pull yourself out of it how did you take the steps that you knew that you needed to put yourself back on an ascendant loop as opposed to plummeting further yeah it's it's uh it's a rough one i think i think i have an incomplete answer um i have a habit of sort of you know i'm feeling sadness or i'm feeling depression um and i have a habit of kind of compartmentalizing that and instead of acknowledging that or working through it in a more kind of healthy way, I basically throw myself full bore into whatever's in front of me. And, uh, you know, as a 17 year old, that was like high school debate. So I was super, super gung ho as a debater. And, you know, uh, Grandpa Charlie passes away. Um, I put myself fully into preparing for like the state debate tournament. Um, and, you know, I, I just prepared to a level that's probably like obsessive and unhealthy. Uh, and I come out as like the state champion. I, I win this tournament. Um, I use that, f- I, you know, I'm still feeling sad and kind of empty. I put all of that mental energy and all that despair into preparing then for like the all American qualifier. And I make the team. I'm one of the top five in the country. Wow. Uh, and now we're going to South Korea for the world championship. And so it, it, I just continue that. I continue really this like obsessive drive to accomplish these things. And uh, you know, that's, maybe not the most like a positive or uplifting fuel, but like, I think that's part of where my drive can come from is channeling those like feelings of sadness or despair into, you know, creative fuel and Mm -hmm. really just like the work ethic to like, to push beyond. And so I think that again, incomplete answer. Cause I actually, I don't recommend Like I think there are probably a lot healthier ways to deal with that. And I'm, you know, I'm a work in progress. I'm still absolutely learning how to to do that in a more constructive way. Mm Mm-hmm. No, for sure. I mean, the, the the power of kind of leaning on those darker emotions and using them as fuel, like they're hugely powerful. 
Yeah. And they can be quite valuable. It's the issue is sometimes for me personally, if you lean on them too much, you fall in. Yeah. And then you end up dragging yourself further down and then you need to lean harder on them because you don't have access to the the positivity, the positive emotions that can be used in a much, much more sustainable way. Hey, well said. Yeah. yeah. It's not an easy thing to deal with, yeah. not an easy thing to to recover from, as yeah. it were. Um, coming back to the seven marathons in seven days. Yeah. After, for me personally, after I've achieved something like on that level, and you've had your focus dialed in to achieving mm-hmm. this big overarching goal, and then you achieve it. I always taper off. Mm. I've always found that I tapered off because it's like, what's next? Yeah. Where, where do I put my focus? You've struggled with some depression more recently as well that you mentioned. That's right. Was that to do with the achievement and then the not having something to go to, or was that? Yeah. It. Um, yeah. So it's it's a. Um, you know, I, I do these seven marathons in, in seven days, seven kind of deal. Um, I'm feeling, uh, you know, I should be feeling like absolutely on top of the world. Like my, my hometown football team is calling me. They want to do an interview because like I had the, the, the football flag at the finish line. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah. I love the Seahawks, man. Go Seahawks. Um, uh, you know, my, my alma mater is calling. They want to do like a story about this. Uh, my friends are like buzzing my phone off the, off, you know, off the hook and all. Um, and I, I should be just like on top of the world. Like I, I achieved this goal despite like a lot of kind of obstacles and, and adversity and all. Uh, but I don't. I, I feel uh, I'm in a lot of pain. Number one, physical pain. Yeah. Uh, Understandably so. Yeah, my <laughs> man, my my quads are burning. My my knees are just real goofed up. Um, so that's part of it, certainly. And then my, uh, you know, I worked so hard to make this race happen. I, I was dating this really wonderful gal in Chicago, and. Uh, you know, I was so like obsessed with making this race happen. I think it ends up driving a bit of a wedge between you know, my girlfriend and I. So much so that actually the October before this run, three months beforehand, we actually call things off. We're just not able to make it work anymore. And uh, you know, I my biggest fear going into this run is like she's not going to be there at the finish line. And she's not at the finish line. Like we're she's not my girlfriend anymore. She's not flying down to Miami to be there for me. Uh, and like that that part of it, I think was really really tough to process and to uh to kind of bear because i'm coming out of this like fairy tale dreamland and now i'm just left with this like physical pain kind of this mental um, anguish and i feel like a shell of myself i have no energy your serotonin your dopamine is gone and yet you're you need to wear this mask because like everyone is like you should be so triumphant like yeah. why aren't you like what's 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 the matter i don't want to have what's that conversation yeah. yeah what's wrong like, oh i don't want to talk about that like yeah. i i would rather just wear this mask get this done with and and that's really tough and that um you know that's february and it's winter it's dark it's like drizzly all the time it's cold um and you know, my legs aren't working and like for me my profession is like my legs man like i gotta like move around and i got to um i'm always saying like the next things and not having like the next thing and also being concerned about hey like are the legs okay? <laughs> what have I done? What have I done? That's part of it. And then, you know, there's, there's always, cha- as, a, as an entrepreneur, as a, as a founder CEO, there's always challenges you're working through. And when you're not in the right headspace, those challenges, instead of being like, you know, these obstacles are opportunities to learn, to grow, to develop, which that's my philosophy. Like instead, that obstacle looks like K2. It looks like Mount Everest in front of you. And you've got no energy to climb that. Yeah. And all of a sudden, we're back to the doom loop. And you know, that's how I was feeling, man. In February and March, I am kind of spinning my wheels and like I um, again I'm like getting like all these like cool invites to do cool stuff and yet like I'm not fulfilled I'm not happy and it's one of these like you know what's going on and I'm working with this mindset coach wonderful dude named Jeff and 
we're, you know, one of our like constant themes, like talking about, you know, taking stock of where you're at and making it okay to feel those feelings and to like work through that as they come. And, you know, I started focusing on uh, daily habits for the first time in a long time where um, I find if I like read my Bible and I pray and then I meditate, then I write in my journal to start a day. I'm like way, way more like centered. I'm feeling much more gratitude, even if my, you know, training is tough or like I'm dealing with some like setback or injury or, you know, deal at work. Well, I have like the right presence of mind and I've got like the right sort of, uh, sort of ethos about it to be able to like battle through that in the right way. So, um, you know, I found that, uh, eventually come to a place where if I can really get into the right groove on like the daily habits, then I'm going to be in, you know, in the right place mentally to deal with the stuff. Cause it's inevitable. Like it's going to keep happening mm-hmm. and you got to get your mind right. Oh, for sure. Anchoring your day in, in some way. So that could be through like journaling or praying or running or meditating or any of those things. Being able to start your day with a win. So Steve, everything else for the entire course of the day falls apart. Everything goes wrong. You can still look back and go. House money, baby. <laughs> I got that. I got that. That one. Yeah. That one is in the bag. I'm going to bed and I'm going to start again tomorrow. <laughs> Like so that. talk about you talk a lot about how like obstacles obviously present opportunities and that is one of the, the core tenets of stoic philosophy yep. which we delved into a little bit how yeah. did you get into stoicism was this at the same time that you were reading plato and came across the diet yeah so i was a pretty nerdy guy in high school so i was reading uh, uh as part of being a high school debater you got to read like lots of philosophy yep. to like learn the stuff and you know i remember reading so Marcus Aurelius uh, as like a freshman in high school. Um, and I remember being like most, a lot of philosophy is very dense and it's written in such a way in which it's almost like, are you in the club or not? And like, yeah. you're not in the club because you're just some 14 year old. Whereas, uh, you know, Marcus Aurelius and meditations, these ideas just, they, wow, it's like so approachable. And the more that I, I read, the more I appreciated this, you know, this fellow's just wisdom and worldview. And, um, yeah, I realized, wow, like, this is almost 2,000 years old, and yet, like, it's every bit as relevant for today mm-hmm. as it was when this Roman emperor was reflecting after, like, a day of battling the Gauls. Yeah. And, and it's pretty wild, like, just, just how relevant it is. And from that, I, uh, that helped me find more of an even keel. You know, I was a big baseball pitcher growing up. That was my dream job was to pitch for the Seattle Mariners. And as a pitcher, you have to have a short memory. Like, the first pitch is a bad one. The guy cranks it in the gap. Now you've run around second base. Well, that doesn't matter anymore. It's about the next pitch. And uh, stoicism for me, that was a really great way to ground that, um, like sort of a theory behind the practice. And then as a debater, like you have bad speeches or good speeches, like that doesn't matter anymore. It's about the next speech. And and now as an entrepreneur, I have bad days and good days. And now it's about tomorrow. And for me, stoicism, along with, you know, uh, my Christian faith, those have been really like the pillars of, you know, a belief system I'm trying to build out and really, uh, really learn from and just like be a the best person I can be out in the world. So uh, yeah, I got really lucky. I stumbled upon when I was 14 mm-hmm. and Marcus Aurelius is a wise dude. So I remember when I first read it, the, the one that still sticks out about is why is it difficult to get up in the morning? Like, should we stay in bed where it's comfortable or get up and do the things that you're supposed to do during the day? Yeah. And I'm reading this and thinking, <clears throat> As you say, here's a 2,000-year-old like Roman emperor who's dealing with running the Roman Empire at its peak. Mm-hmm. And here he is writing in his diary about why it's difficult <laughs> to get out of bed in the morning. He's like, oh, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe there's something to this stuff. That's right. Oh, for sure. So fast is no time. That's, that's the next thing. Hey. That's what you're focusing on at the moment. 
This ties into your run the mile on your own, run the mile you're on, sorry, mindset. Take us through both of those. Yeah. So I'm, uh, it's March 1st, 2019. I uh, do my first jog since the World Marathon Challenge. The legs are working again. Legs are working. <laughs> and I was afraid they wouldn't. And this, this is a one mile um, little jog between my office and the uh, the apartment. The legs are okay. Wow. That feels better than I thought it would. Yeah, the quads are still stiff. Knees are still stiff, but I'm coming back. I'm the kind of person that I really have to have a goal that I'm working toward with, you know, with a goal. I feel like I've got a compass. I'm on a path. Without that anchoring, I'm, I'm a little lost. I'm a little adrift. Just psychologically, that's how, that's how I am. And so I set a, a bit of a crazy goal. Um, I looked at the calendar. I said, Hey, you know, two, roughly two months out. What, what is there? Okay, cool. Mar, uh, May 5th. Uh, Cinco de Mayo, which is a big holiday in America. I'm going to try to run between Hongqiao and Pudong Airport. Random goal I've had for a while. Why not now? You know, it's about uh, 56 kilometers. That's going to be a, uh, a perfect way for me to like really like test out the legs, really build up back to that point. So I want to, you know, get back into this because uh, I'm happier and healthier when I'm running. And uh, really started working toward that. Um, I had met a really amazing gentleman, the guy who won World Marathon Challenge, told me about this kind of sub-community within running where you pick two landmarks and then you try to set the fastest known time between them. Uh, it's, it's, it's not a race uh, and it, it's really a community about getting active and really like just a fun kind of competitive spirit to like find your best. Um, and I, as he was describing, I was like, wow, like this, this sounds rad. I want to um, let me think about that. And I, you know, I picked Hong Chao to Pudong and I, uh, early morning, like 1 a.m. May 5th, set out. And in five hour, five and a half hours, I cover uh, the distance crossing the, the Huangpu River at uh, the Shupu Bridge, which was terrifying. There's no bike lane or pedestrian lane. No bike lane or anything on that. No. Yeah. So you're next to a big, very big trucks uh, in the middle of the night, which uh, was definitely terrifying. But I um, make it across, and I remember getting into uh, Pudong Airport right around sunrise. And it just felt absolutely amazing kind of clicking off the GPS watch and realizing, Hey, like I've, you know, I've set this fastest known time, man. This is, this is just a really sweet feeling. Um, part of, uh, part of my challenge as a, you know, a pro ultra runner is I am, I feel cooped up. Like Shanghai is pancake flat. Yeah. The air isn't always the best. Um, and so uh, most of my ultra you know, career, six, six plus years, uh, seven plus years now is you're in, um, uh, you're going up into the mountains or across deserts, and most of your competition is training in said mountain or said desert. And as a flatlander, you just you're missing a big part of like the the physical and uh, psychological edge going to these races. Whereas for fastest known time, I, I've kind of made the bread and butter in the uh, the months and months since. I, I've been finding some really fun uh, kind of urban courses where my like navigation uh, abilities, my sort of agility, because uh, none of these are actual race courses that are just you going point to point as quick as you can. Um, it, you know, it, it's it's on. Um, these are skills that I think I'm pretty good at from training in Shanghai. And then I uh, I travel so much for work. I've just made it my mission. As I travel, I'm gonna go try to yeah try to knock off a fastest known time. And so in June. I was on a road show for uh, for Dyad, connecting with investors and strategic partners, um, uh, and potential employees, and it was just it was awesome. Like you know, I'm I'm getting into uh, New York City. Great, I'm going to run LaGuardia to JFK. Let's go try that. I'm in Chicago. I'm going to run O'Hare to Midway Airports. Let's go for it. I'm in DC. Let's do Reagan to Dulles. I'm in LA. Let's do Hollywood Burbank to LAX. And, and literally, I'm just doing those you know week after week after week. And so June, I do four of these. 
come back to uh, uh, Shanghai. I'm going to knock out the Bund. I'm heading to Montreal for a friend's wedding. Let's go knock out the uh, the airport, the cathedral there. And, and really, I've just kind of made a game of it. So like, it's yeah. been it's been a fun one, and it keeps me on my toes. I want to stay trained so that as I travel for work, I'm able to uh, really just push myself. And, and really, my mission here is in each of these communities. I think there are a lot of folks that uh, are looking for a spark to get active. And, and my big message is, look, you can explore your neighborhood. You can explore your community. And this is your playground, man, to like go become the best version of yourself. And there's some crazy guy running from the you know the airport to the landmark in town. Uh, so too can you. Like go out on those trails or go hit the streets and get active, get fit, dream big dreams and go do them. And that's what uh, FKT has been um, – uh, been for me and I'm uh, you know uh, today is what Tuesday night on Sunday I'm doing my first uh, I'm calling it the durian double uh, I'm gonna run from uh, Singapore's airport to Marina Bay Sands nice. uh, 18 kilometers a little bit of jungle in between and then uh, uh, about 16 hours later I'll be uh, after taking a flight I'll be in Kuala Lumpur gonna run from the KL airport there in Malaysia 60 kilometers onto Patronus Towers. Um, nice. So yeah, my, my first, uh, I'm aiming for two FKTs in a day, which um, we'll see. Knock, knock on wood here. So That'll be a good one. I've, I've done the drive from um, KL to Patronus Towers. And nice. That's, that's going to be a hell of a route. So your philosophy that's kind of driving you behind these things, the, the run the mile you're on mindset. Yeah. What does that mean? Obviously that means more than just the running what is that philosophy? yeah yeah it's um boil it down so often in life i think this particularly for those of us that you know we're we're motivated or we're chasing a vision or a dream it's easy to to feel overwhelmed we're like this is so big and i'm so small what am i really doing am i even making progress i've i've gone nowhere on this um those are ideas i think that can come out uh, and can really stifle our progress they can paralyze us as we go run the mile you're on is all about focusing on where you're at now uh in one of these 100 mile races you can only run the mile you're on you can't you know no matter how fast you run the next six minutes you are not going to finish the race but you could be at the end of this mile uh, and then you get to the next mile and that approach has been uh, inspiring for me in my training me and my racing me and my leadership me in the you know in the startup world and the, the mentality is all about do the best you can with the opportunity right in front of you today. And if you execute crisply day in, day out, uh, you'll surprise yourself how far you can go, how quickly you can go. Um, and really, that's the mentality that I'm trying to, to live my life by. Because um, I've done it the other way, too. I've done it with just, wow, this dream is so exciting. Let me just keep you know, reaching for it wildly. And months pass. And hey, like, I haven't got anything done on this because I've just been like grasping at straws. Um, you know, you're chasing black dogs in the night under that that strategy. Whereas, really like consistent forward progress with run the mile you're on, I uh, you, you take satisfaction in the process. You take satisfaction with the distance that you covered, and before you know it, you've uh, you've achieved more than you even made out to achieve. For sure, I agree 100 percent there. Taking those the marginal gains because the big picture is obviously important. If you don't have a goal, then you're up and down the pitch for the duration of the game, and you'll never score anything. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Taking the small, like the little incremental steps to really drive and then really build some momentum, I cannot be overstated. And it's it's easy. Any anyone can take a single step. And if you hey. take one, you can take another, then you can take another. Exactly. Heck okay. Yeah. So just before we wrap up, one thing that I, I like to ask mm. anyone that I have on, anyone who comes on is Depression is something I've dealt with. Depression is something that you've dealt mm. with as well. If there's someone listening 
who's struggling at the moment, is in that doom loop, yeah. doesn't know what to do. What is one thing that they could do right now mm. that would really help them kind of move forward in dealing with that? Yeah, great question. Um, one thing that's worked for me that I would encourage uh, others to, to try out is take a few deep breaths wherever you're sitting, wherever you're standing, and then uh, head out for the nearest door and go get a nice walk. Uh, whether it's raining, whether the sun's shining or anything in between, a little bit of fresh air, some nice deep breaths has a way of kind of uh, calming your nerves, soothing some of the anxiety that you're, you might be feeling um, and can give you a little bit of clarity on whatever is to happen next, whether that's going to take a nap or get some sleep or reaching out to a friend for a talk or that phone call you've been putting off, whatever it is that, uh, that might make you feel a little better. Um, some deep breaths and then some time with some fresh air um, has been just a, uh, a recurring game changer for me. Whenever, whenever I'm feeling that way, I go get some steps. Perfect. Great place to finish. Best of luck with your durian double. Hey, thank you. I will be keeping an eye on, on your Instagram, which I will put in the description of the show for anyone awesome. else who wishes to follow along. Um, and again, thank you very much for doing this one. 100%. Absolutely enjoyed it. Absolutely enjoyed it. Thank you very much for listening, and I will see you again soon. That was Rolling Forward. I hope you enjoyed listening to this as much as I enjoyed recording it. If you enjoyed this episode or you feel that there is something that I should be talking about or someone that I should be talking to, please don't hesitate to get in touch. The most effective way to do that is to leave a review on iTunes or whatever podcasting app you are listening on. I will read any and all reviews, so please leave me your comments so I can provide you with even more value. Again, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you next time.